It is April the 17th, 2016, lecture discussion number 237 on the Book of Romans. I'd like to say right off the bat for my folks on the Internet more than anything else, yes, it is a new shirt. We went all the way to Burlington Code Factory and got one or maybe two new shirts, and it has no pocket. Now, who would buy a shirt with no pocket? Makes no sense at all. I wouldn't have done it. So I'm going to have to get a tie that has a pocket. But I'm very disappointed in my decision making again. I'll never, I never knew that you could buy a shirt, a dress shirt without a pocket. What, what's the word I'm searching for? What idiot would sell something like that? Anyway, April 17th, 2016, lecture discussion number 237 on the Book of Romans. At the conclusion of last Sunday's lecture, it was made very clear that I am not exactly going to stream through our little diversion here into Acts 5. And the reviews are in, and if last week's post game that happened here for over an hour is any indication, things are not going well for the beloved teacher, <laughs> which is me, for those of you who think otherwise. Anyway, as is customary, I am disinclined to openly display what I believe to be the solution to Acts 5, if you will, the solution as I see it, because it's my strongly held belief that to do so is counterproductive. It's a bad thing, in other words. All of the fish analogies apply. Telling you what to think I submit is far less of value than providing the method of the analysis, the how to think, the how to fish. Handing out fish is rarely a fertile exercise in my experience. So I am reticent to start. I have discovered that throughout my so-called teaching career that such is in fact degenerative to the students. Uh, it's atrophy, results in atrophy. Thus, I, I avoid handing out free fish by design. Nothing is free but the grace of God. There's a penalty for handing out free fish, which by, the, by no coincidence, the grace of God's freedom is today's subject in a sense. But having said all of that, it's hoped that at the least some of you would be capturing some fish. On little smallish nibblers, I'll take it. And that, to, to be fair, is happening. But I'm concerned from my Internet and now from the class here that is on site that the majority are not, the fish are not hitting the line, for lack of a, to keep the analogy going. So when this, by the way, occurs, it's always the teacher's fault. It's always the teacher's fault. There's no exception. If nothing is being learned, then nothing is being taught. Now, in my defense, Ananias and Sapphira is really tough. I would equate it to Samson uh, or maybe Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve seems a little bit clearer to people, but uh, Adam and Eve, very difficult. Samson is, is uh, I have a hard time getting Samson across. It requires, Ananias and Sapphira requires what Bill the Cow was talking about earlier in the in the pregame, accumulating many seemingly unconnected pieces and assembling them all into the correct or precise order. There's lots of evidence here, lots of pieces, hundreds. 
which is good. If you have this kind of situation in Scripture, that means what? That means a great treasure is going to come up out of here. This is a deep, a deep hole. and You're going to have to keep digging to find it. So uh, we're going to read this again one more time. And while, I'll, while, while I do so, train yourself to ask, why is this detail given in this passage? Why is it here? Try to approach it. I make this comment a lot. Look at it almost like a mystery. And you're, it's a crime. And you, you're gathering. You're the forensic team. You're trying to figure out why all of these things are on this particular scene, if you will. How does this fit together? What caused what? What came first here? Where else in the Bible do I find this? So here we go again. One more time, I hope. I probably should erase the other side of the board. This is Acts 5. Uh, for those of you on the Internet, it's been sitting here now long enough. You could go back to it and refer to it. Uh, if need be, I'll probably flip back. Let me get rid of this list here, this interconnective list that I've been trying to save. And we'll take half of it. That won't be too hard to deal with. Easily reconstruct it in less than a month. That was a joke that nobody laughed at. Okay, Acts 4. Try again. Acts 4, because you, you have to understand that what happens at the end of Acts 4 is what causes Acts 5. So we'll start at verse 31. You could go all the way back to the beginning of Acts 4 if you wanted to, but we'll start at 431. <coughs> Excuse me. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken. I have a shaking. And they were filled. With the Holy Spirit. And they spoke the word of God with boldness. Now the multitude. Not going very fast, am I? Of those who who believed, so the multitude of those who believed, they are what here? This How big is the multitude? It's a multitude of who? Believers. As opposed to what? Non-believers. Pay attention to that. I won't write that one on the board. Now, the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord. And great grace was upon them all. That makes sense, doesn't it? Because they were all who? They were all believers. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all were possessors of land or houses. Wow! 
sold. I'm sorry. Let me say that better. I gave a wrong inference there. This is a wow, but I said it badly. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked. For all who were possessors of land or houses sold them. Wow. So everybody that owned houses or land went out and sold it. And brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet. And they distributed to each as anyone had need. And Joseph who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite. He's a Levite. Did I mention to you that Barnabas is a Levite? Who's got what? Land and a house on it. A Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. How long did that take? But a certain man named Ananias and with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession. And he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie? Satan, lie. Whenever I see Satan and lie in the same sentence, I know something amazing is about to... I am got, bring a lunch. I'm in real big trouble now with regard to how fast I'm going to get through this. Years, maybe my whole lifetime. Ananias, why has Satan filled? Satan fills as well as the Holy Spirit fills. I got Satan and Holy Spirit filling side by side, if you will, or within a few verses of each other. Satan fills your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back of the price of the land for yourself. While it remained, was it not your own? Does that seem familiar? Own? Didn't we just talk about a bunch of people that decided they didn't own anything? Now we got a guy here that owns something? Was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? That's a question. What's implied in the question? The answer is implied. Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Satan. The lie of Satan. To who? Who did Satan lie to? Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear. I have great grace, and now I have great Fear. How great was the fear? Unimaginable fear. I was mentioning this to uh, Dana just a few minutes ago while we were setting up the stage electrically. If I were to faint here, just fall down, we have medical professionals, would they be afraid? No. They'd run up. And try to revive me. If they were unable to revive me, being related to me, they would begin to accumulate their inheritance. And they would start fighting over the gun collection. Exactly what would happen. Who gets what? Okay. The most heavily armed pastor, perhaps, in all of South Anchorage. It's me. And all of that would go immediately into dispersal before the 
federal government seizes it. That is a joke. No, it's not. Those of you on the Internet. Anyway, the point of it being is that there would be no panic. There would be no fear. What happened here caused great fear. Unimaginable fear. So, as Bill the Cow points out, where else do I go now in the Bible to find great fear? This was an extraordinarily fearful event. Let's keep moving. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. What things did they hear? They heard Peter and Ananias. And the young men arose and wrapped him up. I got young men in here. How many young men? Where did they come from? Wrapped him up, carried him out, and buried him. Now it was about three hours later that his wife came in, not knowing what had happened, and Peter answered her. Does this look like an answer? So she didn't know what had happened. What do you think she did when she got there? Because Peter answers her. Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. She said, yes, for so much. Then Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Because what did Peter determine? That she was part of this conspiracy. Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door. Not good news. Because she knew who, was, who that was. And, we'll, and they, they will carry you out. Uh-oh. Rut-row. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead and carried her out and buried her by her husband. So great fear came upon all the church and, all, and upon all who heard these things. Great fear. I should interject before we go on that Luke is the vehicle through which the Holy Spirit uses to record the book of Acts, right? And Luke places uh, Luke 1.35 at Acts 4.27. Let's go back a second. For truly against your holy Jesus, yours might say servant. That I don't believe is correct. The old King James says holy child. For truly against your holy child. But the old, old King James also in Luke 135 says holy thing. There's no description that can, that can be given by men to come even close to what it is that Christ as a child, who he is and what he is. He's called the holy thing. Take note of that. And if your translation says something else like holy servant, get rid of it. Okay, attempt number three now begins on Acts 5, hopefully with the desired end this time. I keep reading Acts 4.31 through 5.11 because eventually I know the process will work. The more we read a passage, the more we glean the increasing of information, the corresponding improvement to the accuracy of the conclusion. 
So just keep reading it, keep reading it, keep reading it until finally something comes through for you. That is uh, the absolute correct way to approach Scripture. I have emphasized, and it is impossible to overstate the importance of the resurrection of God here in the story, item number five today, and the great grace of God, item number six, Acts 4.33. I cannot state it loud enough or firmly enough. I cannot say to you, stop and look at that, because that is what I believe uh, is where the entire, where the pivot point is of the entire passage. If you prefer, and I do, I will call this God resurrecting himself and God giving himself. Which is the take me of Genesis 15.9. God giving himself. More on that later. So we begin by asking two fundamental why questions. Why does God resurrect himself? Why does God offer salvation that is free, the great grace? Why is the grace of God free? Which immediately, by extension, causes the next question. Why is the grace of God alone? The grace of God is by itself. There's nothing else free, only the grace of God. Why is that the case? Now, you might decide otherwise. You might have started to think in your minds that there are other things that are free. You might have another supposed free entity or occurrence or thing. Don't be so sure. Begin to question whether or not it really is free. Can it survive inspection? Always know, the only thing free is the grace of God. Okay? So we begin with the solitary nature of the grace of God and the necessity that only God can resurrect God, which becomes a direct proof that Christ is God, by the way. I worked that out while I, while I, I continue here. I watched myself on Supper Dave's. I don't go all the way to the end because I can't watch it very long without wanting to shut it off. So I really don't know what Dave does on these YouTube videos with his comments and things. Please don't blame me anymore. But uh, I tried to watch myself. And I've never watched myself speak before. I've heard myself a little bit, but I've never watched myself. It is difficult for me to do this. I can't stand it. I now realize that my tongue is so large that I cannot get it out of the way of my face. Not good news. And I think that bothers me. I made that comment a while back that I don't feel as relaxed as I used to because I know what you're seeing is going to go out into the ether. That doesn't make me feel very good. Occasionally I'll get someone who says, we're glad you're doing it, and that makes me do it again. Just to give you an idea how, how much I don't like it. Ah, okay. Side by side is the resurrection of God by God and God giving himself. God giving God. So, 
The resurrection of God by God and God giving God side by side are those two. They are not separable. You can't get rid of one of them. They are such that they are uh, dependent, if you will. That doesn't really make theological sense, but that's all I've got. The resurrection of Jesus Christ requires the salvation by great grace. Great grace renders mandatory, compels the resurrection of God by God. It's a circular thing. It has no end to it. Okay, moving along. Just for a second. Feel free to think this through while I move along. It's so important to understand how those two correspond and connect to each other. So uh, go ahead. Just be aware that you can feel you are free, but you may not be totally free, which means that we then have to define what free is, right? You got all that? Never mind. Moving along. After this, this 431 through, uh, uh, through 35 of Acts comes the reaction. The reaction is, is all who were possessors of land or houses, and that would be both. They would either have land or they would have land with houses. But everybody who owned real estate divested their holdings and made an offering of the proceeds at the feet of the apostles. So they went out and sold their land and their houses, certainly those that had land with houses, and immediately took the proceeds and laid them as an offering at the feet of the apostles. Now, how long did that take? And if it didn't take very long, what does that mean? It wasn't about the money. It was about getting rid of the houses of the land. Because if I'm going to sell something really fast, how am I going to do on it financially? Not good. I'm in no position to negotiate when I want to get rid of it now. The implication is is that they realized, wait a minute, we have got to get rid of our houses and our land, and they sold it now. And they took and put it at the feet of the apostles as an offering. I think that's be very, very important to understand. Ask why. Why land and houses? Who were these people? Of the multitude, who were the people that owned land and houses and went about selling them? And why didn't they sell their furniture or their cattle or their sheep or their weapons or their pottery or their jewels or whatever else you would like? They didn't. They sold the land and the houses. Just land and houses. That is a detail that helps you solve it. The multitude was of one heart and one soul. No one believed that they possessed or owned anything. Because of the shaken house, the spoken word, the filling of the Holy Spirit upon the apostles, which now made them teach of the resurrection, the evidences of the resurrection, and the great grace with boldness. It's boldness. Boldness and the filling of the Holy Spirit are in concert. By the way, it has not been uncommon uh, throughout history for the professionally religious to utilize Acts uh, 4.32-35 through 35 to do what? To make money. Which is the exact opposite of what it teaches. You can't get any more opposite, but if I had 
a dollar for every pastor I have heard stand up and say, do you see what people filled with the Holy Spirit do? They sell their houses and they give it to me. Why aren't you giving me more money? That is the opposite of what it says. Going on for centuries and expect it to continue to the very end. If the pastor owns a lot of land and a lot of houses, let's put it this way. If the richest man in the city is the pastor, be on high alert. That is wrong. But I I digress, as usual. Something has happened. And those who owned land and houses willingly made an offering of the proceeds, which was distributed for need. What was the need? Who needed it? Who sold it? Who bought it? If you're investigating it, those are questions you need to uh, resolve. Well, we know one guy, don't we? One guy's identified. What's your view? Is he the only guy that's like himself? Or is there a bunch of them? Of the multitude, how many of them own land? Who are the landholders of this multitude? Joseph, Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Again, many people think that he sold land in Cyprus. How long is that going to take? Is he going to have to go to Cyprus? I don't think he sold land in Cyprus. I don't think it makes any sense. I think the context tells us that this is a Levite who owns land in Israel. I said last Sunday that I believe the inference is clearly that the Levite owns land in violation of Numbers 18.20, Deuteronomy 10.9, which is the same thing. So we probably ought to read that. So let's go read that and see if that helps us solve this. I think it will. 18.20. Then the Lord said to Aaron, You shall have no inheritance in their land, nor shall you have any portion among them. God says this to Aaron. I am your portion and your inheritance among the children of Israel. You don't get any land because I am your inheritance and I am your portion. So that's the key clue. Not the key clue, but that's one of them for sure. It becomes very important, I think. Barnabas obviously when he experienced what he experienced, when he was part of the multitude. He's part of the multitude. He experiences the shaking. He saw a bunch of Galilean fishermen become incredible theologians. They had knowledge that he didn't have. He's a Levite. God commands that his priests, the Levitical lineage, have no land in Israel. Why not? Well, it says, I'm your portion. I'm your inheritance. Consider what that means. Consider the testimony. If you're in the priesthood, you're a Levite, you don't get to own land because your portion, your inheritance is God. So what happens if you own land? What happens to the testimony that is inherent here? 
consider what this means. Barnabas obviously did so, and Barnabas quickly sold his land with his house as soon as he knew what it meant. And it was because of this shaken room, the resurrection of God by God, and the giving of God by God, the great grace. Who else sold their land and their houses? How many Levites in the multitude? Was, was Barnabas the only Levite in the multitude? How big a multitude is a multitude? How many Levites? What's the percentage of Levites in there? If I got 10,000 people there, how many Levites? A couple hundred? What's that? Could have a whole lot of hundreds, couldn't I? Absolutely right. And they all did what? They all sold. How many Levites knew now the full meaning of Numbers 18.20? The reason, the purpose of Numbers 18.20. They understood what it meant to have a portion that is God, a portion, an inheritance that is God, and immediately recognized the evil of a Levite owning land. They knew that was evil. Barnabas knew it was evil. He got it. And he sold it. By the way, if you own land and you get money, what do you have now? Money. Uh Uh-oh, you have money. The Levites took the money and put it at the feet of the apostles. You begin to understand money. What money means. We all know that there are many verses about the rich. And be very careful if you're rich. Rich men, rich people have difficulty. Levites in violation of Numbers 18.20 is what we had here. Why were Levites in violation of Numbers 18.20? By what process? What were the consequences Make the contemporary applications if the priesthood, if the pastorship are the richest people and all they're doing is accumulating tremendous amounts of wealth here on earth. What is that pastor saying testimonially? What's his testimonial? What's his witness? He's he's accumulating all the money he can get. What's he saying? What is being testified of when the priesthood, the closest, if you will, to God, the Levites, are the richest ones in Israel? Deal with that next week, but you can work it out, can't you? Anyway, they take immediate steps, these Levites who were part of the multitude, to rectify their disobedience, and now their testimony is correct again, rightful. God is their portion. God is their inheritance. Their focus is on what? The physical? No, it's focused on the spiritual. Does that mean, am I saying that all pastors should starve? Clearly, I am not starving. I'm saying that pastors who pursue money are dysfunctional. And their testimony is horrifying. How many Levites sold their land and their houses and presented the wealth as an offering? How much did they get for their houses? And I submit, 
however, that there was one Levite who did not do this. We're going to ask why and how this process went. I say to you that the evidence is clear that we have one Levite whose thoughts were consistent with Satan's lie. Satan's lies. And this one Levite had a wife. And well, well, well. Now the story begins to get interesting. Two men bring offerings. Of all the men that brought offerings, I have two men that I'm going to take out. One is Barnabas, and the other is Ananias. And I'm saying to you that their offerings are contrasted here at Acts 5. One of the offerings is accepted. One is rejected. One of the offerers lives. The other offerer dies. Where else in the Bible is this? Yeah, see? Cain Abel. Genesis 4. Knowing why offerings are rejected by God becomes central once again. God will not receive an offering that is Christless. Will not. In the case of Cain and Abel, Abel brought the blood of Christ. He brought a blood-filled offering. In a symbolic sense, it is the blood of Christ. Cain attempted to offer a bloodless sacrifice or a Christless offering. Abel sought forgiveness. Abel confessed his need for a substitute. Why he brought the blood-filled offering. Cain did not. So what is Cain saying? He is saying the opposite of Abel. Cain essentially declares that he has no need of forgiveness. Let me say it again. Beware of people who think they have no need of forgiveness. People who think they have no need of forgiveness believe they have no need of salvation. They are hopelessly delusional. Make the application to Barnabas and Ananias. Which one, I can't feed it to you any better, which one corresponds to Abel? Which one corresponds to Cain? I hope that that is obvious. If not, see me after in the post game. With his offering, one Levite testifies that God is his portion. His inheritance, the other Levite, presents an offering that is based on a satanic lie and is identified immediately as such. I have repeatedly asked, what was the logic, the reasoning behind Ananias and Sapphira's plot? Because it is a plot. It's a trap. What was the, the strategic conception? There was a formulation. The actions of Ananias and Sapphira were not impulsive. They were well thought through in a sense. Well thought in an evil sense. Again, this plan is identified as a satanic lie based on a satanic foundation. Recognize that the Holy Spirit fills the apostles and Satan, as I said, fills Ananias and Sapphira in a sense. I don't think that Satan entered into Ananias. I think that the only one that Satan has ever entered into is Judas. 
making Judas the most powerful created being that has ever existed. The combination of him and Satan. And the wisest, therefore. Certainly the wisest human. Wisest in a sense of, uh, not in a sense of wisdom with respect to God, but intelligence and cunning. The the comparison, the juxtapositioning cannot be ignored. Barnabas and Ananias are side by side. Two Levites, one sold. One did something just a little bit different. The motive was satanic-based versus Christ-based, if you will. It's clearly established in the passage. You see, so far we have this order. We have the healing of the lame man from birth. Remember this guy? Starts at Acts 3. Forty years lame. He's healed. He's 40 years lame from birth. So I try to present. I told Dave the other day on the phone when he called me, uh, pretty much with word for word what Bill the Cow said. Um, he said, I'm not, not doing well here. And this Ananias, Sapphira, and I just said, okay, i got to do a better job. And I hope that I am. I hope I get it done today. It probably won't. It probably goes another week. Is this a trick to make you come back? Yeah, maybe. Maybe it is. <laughs> but I told Dave, when I was a young man, one of my jobs, one of my first jobs was working at a place for disabled children, those suffering mental deficiencies and physical deformities. And I had a young man named Danford. I finally remembered his name, Danford. I was probably 20, 21, and Danford was maybe... He suffered his mental, uh, his cognition, his acuity, his reasoning was impaired and his body was horribly disfigured. It was a birth defect. And his arms were uh, shortened and, and bent. Same for his legs. So whenever I read this about the lame man, 40 years lame from birth, I think of Danford. My job was to carry Danford into the bathroom and allow him to use the facilities. I wasn't good at it. And the first time I did it, I, was, I didn't understand that Danford lacked uh, some self-control. I thought it was going to be okay. It wasn't okay. Needless to say, Danford and I um, were uh, soaked. I was shocked at how much he was capable of, of expelling in, every, in an omnidirectional way. So I was, there I am with Danford. And he looked at me and made me really unhappy because I was clearly an unprofessional. And he said, why you do that? I felt really bad, cleaned him up and took him back to where he was. And uh, it uh, it was very sad for me because I hurt him. Whenever I think of this lame man, I think of Danford. He could, he hardly could do anything. Forty years he's like this, and he's at Solomon's porch. Solomon's porch, Act 3. And after he is healed, he is lifted up and he can jump, he can move, he can, he is restored. And everybody knew this guy. 
They all saw it. Then after him is the shaking room and the extraordinary wisdoms, wisdom that the apostles now possess is uneducated, untrained men, Acts 4.13, who are now Old Testament scholars at an astonishing level. The Levites couldn't understand how these men got to here. Way above them, Acts 4.13. I should, I should read that really fast, huh? Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled. These are the Pharisees marveling at these guys. Stunned. Galilean fishermen are the greatest theologians that they had ever seen outside of Christ. This could not be explained, nor could they explain the healing of this disfigured, lame, 40-year-old man from birth who is now standing with these guys. He's standing there with them. Okay? And they realized that they had been with Jesus and seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could not say anything. We have this combination of this tremendous theological wisdom now, unprecedented in these men. And standing next to them is the lame man. The Pharisees had to stop this because Peter was saying something that they could not allow. Here's what Peter was saying, Acts 4.12. Nor is there salvation in, in any other, for there is no name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. In other words, Peter is saying, the great grace is alone. There's no other way. And it gets worse for the Pharisees at Acts 4.31. There's more boldness, there's more wisdom. So to repeat the order, I have a lame man, he's at Solomon's porch. Get into that next week. And he is healed. And he is now with Peter and John. Then there is a shake, and they go before the Pharisees. Then there's a shaken room. And then I have the deaths of Ananias and Sapphira. And then I have more healing in Solomon's porch. So I have a Solomon's porch sandwich. If you prefer. The Pharisees in the middle of all of this are desperate to shut it down. The worst possible thing is happening. What is that? Was it bad that the leave I'm sorry, was it bad that the lame man was healed? That's bad, but you know, he's saying that Christ is the only way to be saved. That's bad. Bad. What's really bad is what now Levites are selling their land. That's a disaster for the Pharisees. The Levites are going back to Numbers 18.20 where they belong. And the Pharisees are desperate to shut it down. Levites are selling land. Levites, consider the impending cataclysm that is coming for the Pharisees if Levites continue to sell the land and give it to the needy. These Pharisees have been getting rich for a long time. they got a system. And the last thing they want is for the land to be sold. The high priest orders the apostles to be imprisoned again. And after the, after the second Solomon's porch. But if you've read the story, you know an angel comes and gets them out. But I'm getting ahead of myself, so let's back up now. <coughs> I'm actually pretty pleased that I've done 
it all in the assigned time that I said I would. That's unusual. I should be happy. I wrote a note. If you are not in front of 45 minutes here, you're in trouble, dummy. Okay, so I'm doing good. Ananias and Sapphira, a man and his wife. Man and wife, what should I do? Go find the other man and wives. Where's a good place to go? Don't answer that. A man and his wife succumb together to the lie of Satan and are dead following their trial where neither of them confess. Ah, there's a difference. Obviously, there are parallels to Adam and Eve. I said parallels, not congruencies. Adam was not deceived. The Bible makes it clear. Eve being deceived. But both Adam and Eve confess. When you read Genesis again, look for their confession. It is clearly there. They confess. They are repentant. Evidence of that is the fact that they are covered with fig leaves. We've been over this hundreds of times. If you don't know, it's okay. Come see me afterwards. I know there's a few newer people here now. And they had their fig leaf coverings removed and replaced by God Himself with blood coverings for both. And Eve is the mother of life. So those are saved people there. Adam is a type of Christ. And after Adam and Eve both confess, both are covered, I have Cain and Abel. One puts a bloodless offering, the other puts a blood offering. So it changes from both to one and one. Now I have Ananias and Sapphira, both dead, bloodless offering. Adam and Eve, the physical death was not instant. Remember that the lie of Satan contains primarily this. You will not surely die. Genesis 3.4 Not true. Certainly not true for Ananias and Sapphira. And the other part of his lie was what? Isaiah 14.14 You will not surely die and you will be like God. Clearly, we've got to go back to Isaiah 14, 13, and 14, don't we? Also, obviously, I am proposing that Ananias is a Levite, in case that hasn't been clear, a Levite who does not place all of the money at the feet of the apostles. The so much, so much, right? So much, so much. Every time I read that, I always go, so right, so right. I don't know why. I'm weird. Note one more time, Acts 5.4. While it remained, Peter says, let's back up. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back of the price of the land for yourself? It says part in most translations. Of course, that's in italics, and so we don't know how much of it was kept back. I would say a significant portion. While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? If you wish, those are almost rhetorical. What's the answer to those two questions? He gave the money, but did he still have control of the land? 
Yes. Did he have control of the money? Yes. Did he have, uh, did he still own the land? Yes. So how do you sell the land, get the money, still own the land, have the money, and yet give the money? How does that all work? I'll ask again, why does he keep some of it back? See, that's pretty, I think it's obvious, and that's why so many don't catch it. I will see if I can make it obvious, see if I can guide you towards it. Ananias did not actually sell his land. He's still in violation of Numbers 18.20, isn't he? He's still in violation. The other Levites, they're no longer in violation. They have a testimony that God is their portion. God is their inheritance. Where did Ananias get the money? Who gave him the money? He gets money, but he doesn't really lose control of his land, and he doesn't lose control of the money, and he doesn't lose ownership of the land. Where did he get, who could, who would participate in something like that? Come on, you can do this. Who's the bad guys in the story? (laughs) Yes, they are. Are they the only ones? The answer that in the back was Ananias and Sapphira. Clearly, extremely wicked people here. Evidence of that is they are instantly dead which means hopeless. Yes, I have the high priest and the Pharisees are involved. So where did he get the money? I mean, the high priest and the Pharisees are trying to stop this guy. They're doing everything they can to stop them. So who's he plotting with? Who's always plotting? Who always has a trap that you can't get out of? It's the Pharisees. Ananias is a Levite. He's likely pharisaical. And he got the money from the temple treasury. So how does this trap work? Consider his co-conspirators. When Ananias is dead, instant, surely die. The lie of Satan is displayed for the lie that it is. Here's an interesting note. We'll go and read it because I'm doing so good. And it came to pass, Acts 4, 6, and it came, this is 5, and it came to pass on the next day that, that their rulers, elders, and scribes, as well as Annas, the high priest. Oh, wait a minute. The high priest's name is what? Oh, hang on. Let me write his name down. Annas. Now, I know it says Caiaphas, too, but the high priest's name is Annas. How interesting is that? At least it's interesting to me. Okay, I'm running out of time, so I've got to hurry now. This plan of Ananias and Sapphira requires that Ananias go before Peter alone. Sapphira would come three hours later. What? She goes shopping, have a hair appointment? Why is she three hours later? Where did she go? Who went in her place? Why aren't they side by side? They're co-conspirators. They thought of the plan together. They're aware of the plan together in the sense maybe they didn't think about it, but they're the executors of it. So, who went instead of her with Ananias? He did not go alone. I propose that it was the young men. Where's the young men? 
There they are. I'm saying to you that Ananias goes in there with that money with these young men. Who are these young men? Where does he get young men? What are young men primarily in the Bible, by the way? Upon hearing the words of Peter, upon witnessing the immediate deaths of Ananias, the hearing the words, the seeing the death, they saw the death. I want you to imagine they got great fear from seeing this death. What exactly happened? Try to picture what happened. Did he just fall over in a heap? He definitely fell over. Who's there? Who killed him? Peter killed him? No. Who killed him? Holy Spirit killed him. God killed him. What did that look like? Left the body. How did God do it? How do I kill the body? How would God do this? Did they see it? Great fear. You imagine what was there. You imagine the separation, if you will, of the body and the spirit. They saw it. They knew the relationship between the words and the instant death. There was no doubt in the witnesses who saw this. No misinterpretation. And they had great fear. Great fear. Again, as opposed to great grace. And what did this great fear cause them to do? It caused them to get up and wrap and carry and bury the body of Ananias. Their leader. So what was their original mission? Why were they brought in the first place? Why were they brought in the first place? What were they going to do? Peter was going to make a mistake. Because he was trapped. And then what were the young men going to do with Peter? What did they always do? What did I just talk about them doing? Okay, a few minutes ago, on purpose, trying to put it in there, try to then redirect you and now bring you back. What do the Pharisees always do with the temple guard? They arrest people with them and imprison them. That was the plan. As soon as he makes the mistake, Ananias, as a Levite, a representative of the the Pharisaical order, announces the mistake has been made. It's a violation. And they arrest Peter and all whoever they can grab. The Holy Spirit's there. Not good news. Obviously, the young men were changed by what they saw. That death changed them. They had a change of mind. They saw instant death and they knew why and they immediately switched allegiances. It reminds me of my favorite captain and his 50 men, 2 Kings 1 through 13. Okay, the third captain. Elijah says, if I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 men. And he says it to two guys and they get consumed because they don't believe that he is a man of God. That third captain watches that and he goes, that is a man of God. And I'm not going to do what these other two do. And he begs Elijah not to bring fire down and consume him. He says, you are a man of God. You are. Remember that lecture years ago after watching the first and second captains and their men consumed by heavenly fire? He changes sides, begs for mercy for himself and his 50 men. 1 Kings 1.13. He answered the question. The young men are typical military. 
Young men are militarily uh, context, if you will. And Ananias brought them. He thought, they all thought, that Peter would either accept the offering or reject the offering. If he accepts the offering, he's in trouble. Why? If he rejects the offering, he's in trouble. Why? I have a Levite standing in front of a what? A Galilean Hebrew. Who knows the most about the Bible? The Galilean Hebrew. But the Levite is what? A Levite. He has legal authority. And he has a bunch of young men behind him. Why does he keep part of the money? For the same reason we do it today. Don't you watch these shows? If I want to entrap you and I give you money, am I going to give you all of the money? No, I'm going to give you part of the money. Why am I going to give you part of the money? Because I'm going to keep some of the money. Because I'm going to have evidence against you, aren't I? If I give you $100 bills, you're going to notice that the serial numbers, for example, are not consecutive. Why aren't they consecutive? Because I have the intermediaries back here. And as soon as I give you the money, I can prove that that money came from this area or this collection of money. So I'm saying to you that the offering was marked. It was identified. Some was kept back as evidence, also marked in the same manner. It's traceable. If Peter takes it, I can prove where it came from and why he took it. If he doesn't take it, what is he saying? He's refusing the offering. On what basis is he refusing the offering? As a Galilean Hebrew? What is he saying doctrinally if he refuses the offering? What is he saying as a non-Levite if he takes the offering? What is he saying as a non-Levite if he rejects the offering? Okay? Work that out. The trap doesn't work because the Pharisee is now dead and the young men are converted. And they're now witnesses for Peter and not Ananias. You see a similarity, I think, at Judas at Gethsemane. I hate to bring up Judas because everybody thinks Judas and Ananias are similar. They're similar in this sense that both of them, one of them is absolutely uh, interconnected with Satan. The other one has this filling, if you will, without an actual uh, possession, I guess, or an actual joining. But they have a relationship. So thank Judas now. Let's add Judas to Ananias. Again, I'm reluctant to do it, but it really does fit. What, why, did, why did the Pharisees want Judas to go to Gethsemane? They couldn't figure out who Christ was. Judas could come with a signal, couldn't he? Ananias, by giving the money, and Peter taking the money, has a relationship to the kiss of Judas. Let's ask another question. Was Ananias in the shaken room? 
He was not. How do I know he was not? Because all of them believed in the shaken room. And he did not sell his land. He used the opportunity of selling the land as a trap for Peter. Peter has become a problem. He's got to be imprisoned. He's got to be taken out of circulation. And now what are they going to imprison him for? Finally, as we're shutting it down now, let's see, do I have more? I do. Okay, I'll go on. What is money? What do I do with money? Money attracts pathological personalities. People who love money love power. They love control. They control other people. When you control other people, you take away their will. You destroy their will. Power is a magnet to the mentally sick. It's used to deny free will, to control people. It's a love, the love to control people. The Pharisees had a love to control people. That's what they did. I have a Levite with the love to control people, bringing an offering to somebody who was setting people free. There's that conflict. What is Sapphira's role? Why does she come three hours late? Next week, we'll figure that out.